Y'all go ahead and take your Bibles out and turn to Judges chapter 3. This is uh, sermon number 2 in the series. We're just starting up in the book of Judges. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, most of the scripture that we'll use today will be on the screen behind me, but there's a few on the table back there. Just raise your hand and one of the guys in the back will be happy to bring you a Bible if you didn't get a chance to bring one in. Uh, today, but we're going to be looking mainly at Judges 3, a lot of scripture in Judges chapter 3, but also uh, in a couple different passages in the New Testament to kind of go over some of the themes that are in this chapter. But one of the things that I want to start out again reminding you as we look at the book of Judges is uh, the book of Judges is several things. One is exciting. The other one is unpredictable. We're going to see that in a, the cr- a crazy scene uh, in Judges chapter 3 with one of the deliverers that God raises up named Ehud and how he delivers God's people. It's kind of a wild story and it's definitely not the only wild story in uh, in the book of Judges. But one of the things that we're going to see throughout this series as we move through the book of Judges is the tragedy of the affections of the hearts of God's people. And here's what I mean by that. God delivers them over and over again from very real oppression. Baby killing, wife stealing, poverty striking oppression. God delivers them from that over and over and over again. And yet, they'd rather not worship Him. It's the tragedy. And so where I want again, as we think about the book of Judges is with this. What I want you to leave with today is a couple things, okay? I would encourage you to believe in Christianity. I would encourage you to give your entire life and affection to God for this sole reason. Because it's true and He exists, okay? That is the main reason. Christianity is not a series of teachings It's a phenomenon that happened, and then teachings were produced. Y'all clear with that? You believe it because it's true. You believe it because He exists, and everything that this book says about Him is reality. And there's also a second reason. And as we go through the book of Judges, this second reason is the one that I really want to emphasize to you, and it's because He's good, and there's nothing else better. Because time and time again, as we go through the book of Judges, you'll see God move for a people that just don't deserve it. And and sometimes you'll get sick of reading about them, right? And yet God's heart is still moved for them. And there is nothing else in the world that will do that for you. It's just not. And so I want your affections to be drawn to God because there's nothing else that, you, that is worthy of your affections. There's no, there's no person. There's no achievement. There's nothing else that's worthy of your affections like this God is worthy of your affections. So as we're reading this passage, as crazy as it is, and we're watching the nation of Israel deny God over and over and over and over again, what I want you to pay particular attention to is how God doesn't give up, even when they give up on God. Okay? So, again, we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 3. Uh, there's a, a lot of different, uh, lot of different uh, verses here. There's really three main stories in Judges chapter 3. Uh, the first story uh, is really kind of a summary statement 
of what's happening in the book of Judges, how God leaves some of the people in the land that He has promised to His people. And then we're going to get uh, three judges that we're going to see today. Okay, Three judges. Othniel, uh, Ehud, and Shamgar. Now, the, the passages about Othniel are very short. Ehud's, it's a little longer. And Shamgar, he gets like one verse. Right, So, not a, lot about, not a lot about Shamgar in there. He made it into the Bible, which is pretty cool, right? But doesn't get much airtime other, other than that one verse. And uh, one of the things that I want to kind of set the tone, just because a lot of us don't know the complete background uh, to the book of Judges, so I just want to do this very quickly. One of the things that you need to know about the book of Judges and that you need to know about the Old Testament in general is that God has made two epic promises to his people. Okay? There's a lot of them, but I'm just going to mention two. Two epic promises to his people that he has already fulfilled by the time we get to Judges chapter 3. And the first one is this, that I will be your God and I will be with you. The overwhelming truth of the Old Testament and the overwhelming truth of the New Testament is that God desires to be with His people. And the greatest treasure that they can ever have is Him. That has happened, and they still don't really want it. The second one is this. God promised that He would give them this land, and He has. And in light of that, that God has given them this land, and He's given them Himself, they are still unfaithful. And that's the theme of the book of Judges. All right, now, I would ask you to give your attention to God's Word. I'm going to read Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generation of the people of Israel might know war. To teach war to those who had not known it before. Now these are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal-Heron as far as Mount Lebo-Hamath. And they were testing, and they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commands of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers by the hands of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their, pay attention to this, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth, and therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cusha-Rathaim, the king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cusha-Rathaim eight years. But when the, Lord, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and he prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. And so the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. 
Verse 12, And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Amorites and the Malachites, and he went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent a tribute by him to Eglon, king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right side under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence. And all his attendants went from out of his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof of his chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. And then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the door of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber had locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed, but he did not open the doors of the roof chamber, and they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. And Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill in the country of Ephraim. And then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country. And he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So he went down after him and seized the fords of Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time of about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, and not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day. Under the hand of the Lord, and the land had rest eighty years. Verse 31. And after him, Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed six hundred Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. This is God's word, and I told you it wasn't going to be boring. Right? There is a lot going on in this passage, and there's several times whenever you're reading it, and you go on, is this really the Bible um, that we're reading? Again, just a little short commercial for you. It's one of the reasons where I believe we can trust it is true, is because if you're crafting your own religion, you're not going to put embarrassing stories like this in the Bible. And I'm just going to tell you, the more you read of the, more of the, of the Old Testament, the more you're going to see that these kind of embarrassing stories are all over the place. Okay? Um, the main idea that I want us to think about today is this, when we're looking at this passage. Is that struggle, or pain, or suffering, oftentimes reveals who you really are and what you really want. That struggle reveals who you really are and what you really want. So I, I remembered as I was thinking about uh, this passage and I was thinking about specifically the suffering that Israel went through at the hands of these other nations that God used to discipline his nation. 
right? Moab and the Philistines. Uh, and I started thinking about that. And the title of the sermon today is, is Painful Mirror, simply because I thought about an old movie now. It's really old. The first Harry Potter movie. I know it's hard to believe, but Harry Potter is like 30 years old now, right? So that was a while ago. I know, right? What's his name? Daniel um, Radcliffe? Yeah, Daniel Radcliffe is in his 30s, right? Anyway, when he was like in before 10, he was in this, the first Harry Potter movie. And in that movie, there was a mirror called the Mirror of Irised. Okay? Maybe some of you guys remember that. Let me read a little bit about it. it the mirror of Irised is an ancient, ornate mirror, and it has clawed feet and a golden frame, and it, and it had a phrase inscribed on it. And the mirror showed the most desperate desires of a person's heart, a vision that had been known to drive men mad. And then kind of Harry Potter's mentor, this uh, Professor Dumbledore, shows him the mirror and then says this to him. In this mirror we see the deepest and most desperate desires of our heart. The name Irised is just desire spelled backwards. Our desires are what is reflected in this mirror. And then he says this, and I love this, that the happiest and most satisfied person in the world would look in the mirror and see a reflection of them exactly as they were. For they would then have no one and nothing more to yearn or desire for that the mirror could even show them. But this is one of the things that Professor Dumbledore says to Harry Potter. He says this, he said, men have wasted away before this mirror, not knowing if what they have seen is real or even possible. When you look into this mythical mirror, you see the thing that your heart really wants. It's not true in the moment. And I think a very similar thing happens to us when we suffer. Uh, whenever we're put in the middle of pain, oftentimes we, are, we realize, maybe even for the first time, the things that are most important to us in life and the things that we really don't want when all, everything else has been removed. And that's actually the first point this morning, is that pain is a great teacher. I remember one of my kids, uh, when they were young, um, the, we had one of those electric ovens, and you know, when you turn those things on, or the, the stovetop rather, you know, when they turn on, they turn red. And a little kid's not going to want to reach up and touch the little red spot. And learned really quick that that thing was real painful. Even though we had told this, this little one not to touch the stove a number of times, she learned real quick by that pain uh, that, that, that never to touch that thing again, right? It was a real quick teacher. I remember when I was a ball player, oftentimes you never really learned anything from a great a double or a home run, but you learned a lot when you struck out three times. Pain was a great teacher. And pain is a teacher that God oftentimes uses to teach us about ourselves and about Him. I want you to pay attention to the first six verses of chapter 3, um, where God intentionally leaves some people in the land. Now, make no mistake, God could have given the people of Israel this entire land. He could have removed all of the people from it. This is not a big deal for God. The question is, why does he leave the people in the land? All right, we learn about that in verse 1, um, or excuse me, in verse 2. It was only in order that the generations of the people might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. Now, here's an interesting question. Why would God want to teach warfare 
to the next generation of people. Again, brief history lesson of what's going on. The, the first generation, kind of this generation's fathers and grandfathers, come in and they take the first wave of the land. And then it's the responsibility of the next generation to kind of finish the job, right? Now, God could have, in that first generation, used all of the fathers and grandfathers to take the land, but He didn't. He left some out so that the boys would have to learn warfare. Now, why would God do that? Well, I want you to think about the warfare that Israel has always been involved in. Have they ever been involved in a war in the Old Testament where they were not the underdog? Every time they engage in war... They don't have the capacity to win. In fact, most of the time, they're anxiety-ridden, depressed, and desperate because they know that they don't have the men. They're going up against people with chariots. They, they don't have the resources, and they've never been trained in war. They don't have good weapon skills. They don't even have weapons. I mean, goodness gracious, Shamgar's got to deliver the people with an ox goad, Right? Why does God teach them war? Because he's teaching them the only lesson that they need to know and the only lesson that you and I need to know is that we were created to depend on God. And he's teaching them warfare not so that they would be able to, to learn a skill of a craft of throwing a spear or, or what have you. He's teaching them this warfare because he's trying to teach them the lesson of the Bible that without a deliverer, that without a God who is at your back, there's no hope of victory. God never created us to be independent of ourselves. And oftentimes, whenever we go through pain and suffering, is because God is using different means to bring us into this realization that we need Him because we've forgotten that we do. Okay? And that's one of the reasons why he uses pain is to wake us up into this reality. And this is something that's interesting. If you think about how God created the world, uh, he created the world and he created humanity, and he did not create them to be independent, self-sufficient beings. It's not why he created them. Okay? Even before sin entered the world, human beings were still dependent on God for everything. That is security. And here, let me tell you something, okay? I feel like that's got to be one of the most difficult things to believe in 21st century America. That we have to be dependent on God for everything. Because we have so much security around us. Because providentially, we've been given so much prosperity. But I'm telling you, there, if there's warfare in your life, this might be the reason. Pain is a great teacher. Number two. We've got several points this morning. Number two, point number two is this, that God loves you so much that he will give you what you want, even if it hurts you. God loves you so much that very often he will give you what you want, even if it will hurt you. What I want to talk about really quick is we look at this pattern of judges, because this is what happens. Israel, uh, Israel doesn't want God. They worship these other gods, right? Mostly, as we've talked about in here several times, the book of Judges, uh, the reason why worshiping these other gods was so attractive was because the way you worshipped Baal and Ashtaroth was through prostitution. So it was religious, sanctified prostitution. Okay, And so, naturally, that was attractive to the Israelites. 
And it's not the way God operated, but that was why it was attracted. So that's one of the reasons why they fell after their gods. And one of the things that you'll see in this passage over and over again is that God lets them wallow in that pain for a little while. He lets them wallow in that pain for a little while. Why does he do that? Well, I want to talk real quick about kind of the two sides of discipline that God uses uh, for his people, right? The first side of discipline is the kind of typical discipline. It's the kind of discipline that good parents do with their children. Somebody steps out of line, and they get a spanking, or they get some other type of discipline. We learn about that in, in the book of Hebrews, right? So I'm actually going to turn there, and you can just listen to me read it, or you can turn there yourself. And In the Hebrew book of Hebrews, chapter 12, we read about this type of, uh, of discipline. Verse 7, uh, we read this. Chapter, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 7. For it is the discipline, it is for discipline that you have to endure, for God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not listen, discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate and not children, uh, not children and not sons. Here's the point. The point that the author of Hebrews is making is the exact same thing we see in Judges chapter 3, that God disciplines his people. He allows them to feel pain so that they would see that he's worth following. You know, as a parent, that's probably one of the most difficult things for me, and it's something I pray about a lot, because I know as my kids get older, this is something that God's going to use to stretch me, is when is it appropriate to let your children feel pain? What do we want to do, right? We want to protect them, okay? But when is it appropriate to let your children feel pain? God, being all-wise, knows that, and oftentimes will bring pain into their life to wake them up. And here's the second way that he uses, that he disciplines his kids. Oftentimes, he'll say, okay, you really want that? Here it is. Let's see how good that tastes. Kind of the classic illustration of this in the, Old, in the New Testament is the story of the prodigal son, which is one of the most popular stories uh, that you, when people think about the Bible. And this is what the father, who is a representation of God, does in that passage. The son says, listen, I don't want you. I don't want you. I wish you were dead. I just want your money. I just want your stuff. That's all I want. And God says, fine. The father, rather, in that particular scenario says, fine, take it. Indulge yourself. Go for it. Drink deeply of that cup. And he does. And what happens when he comes to the bottom of that cup? There's nothing there. God actually let him go to the end of that desire and find out that there's nothing there. And so maybe you're experiencing pain in your life, and it's brought on by one of two things. Maybe it's the hand of God who controls time, who controls all of creation, who's bringing pain into your life so that you would turn back to Him. Or maybe you've brought it upon yourself. Maybe you have had an appetite or a craving. You've been a slave, just like we read about Romans 6 a little while ago, to a particular sin. And that Sin is now a punishment in and of itself. In that you followed that line out and found out there was nothing at the end of it. In both circumstances, what I want you to see from the book of Judges is that in both circumstances, God is there with compassion welcoming you back, even if he's the one who just spanked your metaphorical rear. Okay? 
all right? He's doing it to bring you back to him. And that's the third point that I wanted to talk about. Remember the general theme that I mentioned at the beginning of, this, uh, of our time together over the Word was I want you to see the heart and the character of God and legitimately be astounded. And the third point for this morning is I want you to see that God's heart is an astounding mix of anger and compassion. It's really fascinating. We read it... Um, you look at verse 7 and verse 8, and we're getting into the Othniel episode now, right? Uh, verse 7 and verse 8 of chapter 3, that the people, did, uh, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth, which we know meant they just wanted to go into prostitution. They, they wanted to participate in, in, in the worship of God through sex. And verse 8 says, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He is furious. He is furious. And we've talked about this last time we were in chapters 1 and 2, in that this is the sign of someone who really loves someone. That the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. God is furious that the people that he loves so dearly has run away from him, and yet at the same time, fury that you've never known before. Uh, pain that he can inflict on you that would blow your mind. And yet at the same time, at the end of this passion, at the end of this passage, he is compassionate. And he raises up this guy, Othniel, to deliver his people. Okay? And what's interesting here, and I'm going to find the specific verse, it's, it's uh, verse 9, and it's actually mentioned in, in the next episode with Ehud as well. We read this. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer who saved them. And that word cried in the Hebrew is actually really uh, significant. It's the second time we've seen it. We also saw it in chapter 2. It seems there that in that passage that the Israel saw the error of their ways and said, Lord, I'm sorry. You were better. This is terrible. This nation that's, that's crushing us, we don't want it anymore. You please, we forgive us of our sins, and, t- and we're going to turn back to you. But that's not what that word means. That word means that they want to be relieved of their suffering. So at this point, they're not truly changed or repentant. They just are tired of getting beat down. And here's the astounding part. Please don't miss this. Miss this. What does God do? Has compassion on them. Even when their heart is not completely genuine and completely right, in, the, in each of these episodes, God still has compassion on them. He is the all-righteous, all-holy judge, has all of creation. He could start another race like that. He could create another people in a minute. And his character is such that he still had compassion on them. Do you know anybody else like that? I don't. I wish I was that kind of man. I'm not. But that is the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, oftentimes in the Old Testament, I remember watching, I can't remember if it was a Friends episode or a Seinfeld episode. Tells you a lot about my TV viewing habits. I want to say it was, uh, I want to say it was Friends. And they were having a discussion about the Bible. And, uh, or about religion, and, and, and uh, they were tell, saying all kind of different things, like, oh, yeah, we've, we've read about that, we've read about that. And someone said, what about the Bible? He goes, oh, I don't need the Bible, I got it. Old Testament God of wrath, New Testament God of grace, right? If you think about it, 
that is so how everyone thinks about the Bible. Maybe that's the view of the Bible that you have here today. I just want you to look at this passage and see the overwhelming nature of God and the compassion and grace of chapter 3 of Judges. These people don't deserve it. And God gives His grace. The love of God is an astounding mixture of anger and compassion. All right, point number four. Point number four is the tragedy is what, of what is revealed in the mirror of suffering. The tragedy of what is revealed in the mirror of suffering in this passage is a heart that does not want God. It's really unbelievable that God delivers them in this passage of Ehud in such an, a ridiculous way, right? And he gives them, look at verse 30 of chapter 3. So Moab was subdued under the hand of Israel, and the, and the land had rest for, for, for 80 years. You look at verse 29. And they killed at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all strong and able-minded. Not a man escaped. And so God brings this nation to judge Israel, and they are, they are just they're very difficult to live under. And then God delivers them. And at the end of it, what do we read about in verse 31? That Shamgar had to be raised up. It only lasted it only lasted a few years. It only lasted one generation. Each time God has this amazing mixture of compassion and anger and throw people and then just give it a few years. And they're just gonna forget about God. And what this brings to my mind when I think about it is the difference between wisdom and desire. And we talked about this a little bit last time we were together. The difference between wisdom and desire. I remember it was a movie uh, that I watched several years ago, and uh, he was at the stage of life that I'm terrified of. The stage of life when your daughters can date, right? It's, uh, I stay up at night thinking about this, and this dad was very similar to me. And um, so his daughters were going out kind of for the first time, and each time they went out, he made them wear a pregnancy suit for an hour. Right, <laughs> and, and I thought to myself, noted, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean, no, duly noted, you know, uh, but what was he trying to do in that moment? What he was trying to do in that moment was, was convince them to alter their ways with wisdom or with logic, which is a good thing. We try to do that all the time. Logic is not bad, but here's a problem. Desire trumps logic every time. Desire trumps logic every time. It is logical that Israel would turn to this God. Where else would you turn? That's not what their desire is, though. Their desire is for their own appetite. And they turn, and they turn away. The tragedy is what, of what is revealed in the heart of suffering, or excuse me, in the mirror of suffering, is a heart that does not want God. But the other point, this is the fifth point, is that the glory of what is revealed in the mirror of suffering is that a God is a God who wants you and who is willing to suffer himself. I'll read that again. I know it's long. The glory of what is revealed in the mirror of suffering is a God who wants you and is willing to suffer himself. The astounding part of all of these judges, and we're going to go through several uh, in the book of Judges, is they can never deliver Israel from their slavery 
to sin. All of these different judges deliver Israel from their slavery to physical kingdoms like Moab or the Philistines. But none of these judges have the power to deliver Israel from their slavery to sin. What do I mean by that? Maybe that, that whole phraseology that I just used sounds strange to your ears. It's one of the reasons why I had uh, Josh read chapter 6 of the book of Romans. Because in that letter, the Apostle Paul is describing the condition of the heart where we want something so bad and we don't have the capacity to not want it. And if there's any book in the Bible that illustrates that principle, it's the book of Judges. That they just don't have the capacity to stop it. They are continually running out and running after these other gods and following their physical desires, and they just can't stop it. It doesn't matter if it's Ehud or Othnel or Shamgard or Deborah or the list goes on. They just can't stop it. No one can break the desire or the slavery of their heart to that desire. And the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that in the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, we have freedom from the penalty of sin and for the first time, praise the Lord, the freedom from the power of sin, like Josh mentioned earlier. Even if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ in this room, you've felt this particular feeling before. Even if you're skeptical about, about Christianity, which is fine, we're glad you're here. You've felt this in your heart before. I wish I could stop doing that. Even if you don't even know, even if you didn't know why, you felt that before. I wish I could stop doing that. And you try all kinds of different things to, to help you stop doing that, and you just can't stop doing it. And the only remedy for this tragic heart problem that all of humanity has is the blood of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb. The glory of what is revealed in the mirror of suffering, I pray, is a God who wants you and who is willing to suffer. There's no other love like that. There's no other love like that that is willing to suffer. Every relationship in your life, if push come to shove, there's a breaking point at some level. But with God, there was no breaking point. Okay? Last, last point, point number, point number six. God is the only one who delights to use you in spite of your limitations. All right, so we have uh, very limited men. Othniel, we don't know much about. Ehud, we know that he was a left-handed man with a small dagger, and he was the one that God used. And then Shamgar, the only, literally the only thing that we know about him is that he had an ox goad which most likely meant he was a farmer. Now, here's what an ox goat is, if you don't know. I had to look it up. It's basically a long stick, like a staff, with a point on the end of it and something like a, like a boat paddle on the other end. And so the point was to poke the ox in front of you to keep him going, and then the, the, the boat paddle in the back was to clean the dirt away from the plow so it would keep going, all right? So here's the point that I want you to see, is that God took the men that were available and used what was in their hand to defeat nations that were previously undefeatable. 
And the principle here from this passage that I want you to see is that it doesn't matter how talented you are. The only thing God wants from you is your availability and whatever's in your hand. I mean, let's be real. If we were going to craft a weapon that was going to kill, this is hilarious, 600 Philistines, it wouldn't be an ox goad, right? But it was what was in his hand. Now, here's what's interesting. When in, in our day and age, and, and this has been true for all of the history of the world, if you have a limitation, you are a liability to society. Now, hopefully society is compassionate. It will take care of you with your limitation. But no place in society will you see someone with a limitation actually used as an asset, except with God. Because he doesn't need you. He doesn't need you. It doesn't matter what you have in your hand. You know, one of the things that's uh, fascinating, I see Charles in the back, and I love working with Charles because he's like a master craftsman, and he's, of course, not going to say that. But here's one of the things I love working with guys like Charles and Michael and other you guys who know how to use their hands is um, you don't have to have the best tools in the world to get the job done. I, I, I lived in that next door in Anderson. I had a neighbor who had a lot of money but wasn't really handy, so he had the best tools in the world. Right? He had all kind of great tools. He just didn't know how to use any of them. Right? And then, I, I've often, then I'll be with other guys who just have a basic hand set of tools, but they can fix anything. Right? That's very similar to how God works. He doesn't need the best tools because he's a master craftsman. And he's got, he's got the power to do that. One of the things that we see here is that these men that God used to deliver Israel weren't used because they were crafty or strong. They delivered Israel because they were spirit-empowered. It says that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel, and he judged Israel. And it was true for all of these different, all of these different men. One of my favorite pictures back in the day, I'll finish with this. One of my favorite pitchers back in the day was Pedro Martinez. I don't know if you, a lot of you folks who like baseball remember Pedro. I loved him because he was real short and skinny and wiry, and he would just dominate. But I remember a quote that I read, maybe a newspaper or something, of Pedro Martinez one day, and if you're a pitcher, your arm hurts all the time, all the time. It just, every day you wake up, your arm hurts. Uh, but there are special days that he wrote when you wake up and you throw that first ball and you know today's going to be a special day. For whatever reason... There's no pain in the arm. And there were days when he, would, when he would get to the field and he would throw the first ball to his partner and he would go, today's a 10 strikeout day. He just knew it. He felt it. There was something different. And in a similar way, but more profound way, God used these men in spite of their limitations and did wonderful things for them. So here's the question as we finish up this morning. Struggle is a painful mirror that I believe shows you who you really are and what you really want. And the question that we need to ask of ourselves as we look in that mirror is what's staring back at us. What I would encourage you is to see the key here is that God loves the person that's in that mirror so profoundly that he himself was willing to suffer to deliver you and to use you to live on purpose. And again, there's no other love, there's no other God like that to take this nation, to take these people and love them in that way. Amen?
Father in heaven, as we think about Judges chapter 3 and we think about this particular passage, Lord, I want to pray that as you use whatever type of pain it is in our life, I pray, Father, that you would help train our desires. God, would you open our eyes to allow us to see the astounding beauty of your character and the power and grace of your work. Lord, that as as we leave this place, we would offer our lives to you regardless of what's in our hand because you're worthy and because there's nothing better. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.